Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable high-speed internet. Today, I'm joined by Shirley Bloomfield, CEO of NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association, which represents about 850 telecommunications companies delivering broadband services in the rural U.S., She and I discuss ongoing challenges for rural providers when it comes to network deployment and upkeep, what she hopes to see from the FCC and NTIA in the coming months now that they have confirmed leadership, and how NTCA is working to advocate for its members when it comes to federal infrastructure funds this year. Shirley, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to be here with you today, Nicole. Awesome. So to start off, why don't you just share a bit about uh, NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association, and the members that you all represent? So we are a nationwide trade association, and that means we provide advocacy, education, training, networking, healthcare benefits, retirement benefits for about 850 community-based companies across the country that traditionally started off as telephone companies. And they started off as telephone companies in the parts of the country where honestly nobody wanted to serve years ago, decades ago. Some of them go back a hundred years. And these folks now have evolved to becoming obviously broadband providers for their community. So they are we, we cover about 47 states. They cover about 35% of the landmass. They really serve the most rural of the communities that we've got in the country. And um, the thing that's so cool about the companies that we represent and what we do is these companies, because, again, longtime history, they are serving their neighbors. Um, their kids go to school in the, in the communities. They're bringing broadband to these anchor institutions. These companies have done an amazing job uh, deploying technology. They're very forward-focused. They are very service-centric focused. And our latest broadband survey, which we just got the results of in the last few weeks, shows that um, 75% of their customer base actually has access to fiber to the home technology, mm-hmm. which is amazing. So, yeah. so we, we really like to differentiate ourselves as you know those community providers who live, work, and play where they're actually providing the service. So these are really the providers that uh, we need right now to help solve the digital divide in the U.S. So from your perspective and from your members' perspective, what are the main obstacles that these providers face at the local level when it comes to deploying services and when it comes to upkeep of services and service delivery? So those are two really important questions and in some ways kind of very distinct questions. So, you know, when you think about the challenges, um, think about the fact that you're in New York City, I'm in Washington, D.C. We have hundreds of people per mile. Um, Mm -hmm. So when when you think about an infrastructure company coming in and putting in plant, you know, you're able to capture a huge customer base. Think about the fact that when you go to some of these rural communities, our folks average about five to seven customers per mile. Montana, it gets a little dicey. You're sometimes up at about one or half a person per mile. But the plant you are putting into the ground, the electronics, the fiber, the um, the the software, 
it's the same equipment. So you just have a lot fewer people that you are spreading those costs among. So I would say, you know, the first challenge and the reason the job has not been done has has been cost. Mm -hmm. Second of all, you know, we talk about the digital divide. In a lot of ways, people talk about a rural divide. It's really a rural, rural divide. You know, you've got the rural America that is served by these community-based providers, and you've got a rural America that's served by a very large nationwide interest who are making the right decisions for their companies, but that does not include include naturally and necessarily investing in these mm-hmm. lower return areas. So, so again, I would put cost in one bucket. You know, another thing I would say is continuing to work on the take rate um, in these areas and getting consumers and getting these communities to understand what broadband brings. How do you get that adoption up? How do you get people thinking about technology? And I hate to say if there was a silver lining with the pandemic, it was getting people to understand that, oh, oh yeah, you know what? All these things I can now do. I just need the capacity to do it. So so you've got some of those things going on. Um, and then the last thing I would throw in two other things I would throw in right now that are challenges on on actually building the networks. One is actually getting access to equipment. We -hmm. hear about supply chain issues everywhere, whether it's lumber building houses, whether it's automobiles, but I will tell you the same thing is happening in this industry because CPE equipment, the consumer end equipment, uh, the fiber optics, all of those things are are under supply chain pressure. So that is, you know, it's a little bit of uh, survival of the fittest who can get yeah. the equipment. And the very last thing I would say is, you know, getting communities to really buy into broadband deployment. So, you know, making it easier. Um, I know it sounds crazy, but I have a company in the Midwest that it took about 18 months to get a railroad crossing permit to put the broadband from one part underneath the railroad. Did you say 18 months? Did you say 18? 18 months? 18 months. Oh my God. 18 (laughs) months. It was nuts. And by the time they did it, it was still several hundred thousand dollars just to bore under the crossing um, because the railroads are not regulated by anybody. So there's no uniformity in terms of saying, so with those rights of way issues, Mm -hmm. um, that's simply an example of one of them, but those weird bureaucratic things that really could be streamlined to just get things done. Now, on the flip side, I will say the other thing that I thought was really interesting about your question was how do you sustain these networks? So you build them and that's great and it's sexy and it's cool and it's like McDonald's, how many customers served? But the really challenging part is you've built it. Now you've got to maintain it. Now you've got to keep it going and growing and expanding, you know, the capacity for that network. And that is a separate challenge that um, really falls more to the FCC and their universal service program to continue to allow um, the sustainability of those networks and the affordability, right? Because you can build it, but if consumers can't afford to pay for the service, Um, It doesn't matter. So in a rural area, it just it costs more, costs more per customer. Universal service normalizes that pricing so that um, so the customers in rural America are paying something that is relatively comparable to urban America. And that's a gift because we need more people. You know, the network only increases in value by the more users you actually have on the network. So sticking with universal service, I'm really glad you brought that up. the FCC now has Jessica Rosenworcel confirmed as chair, and you and I happen to be talking on the day that the that Alan Davidson is confirmed as head of NTIA. Um, so 
with regard to the FCC and universal service, what do you what do you want to see from them as as they look to revamp that? And um, what are you hoping to see as immediate priorities from the NTIA now that it finally has confirmed leadership? So that's a lot. Um, <laughs> <No>. I'll, st- <laughs> I'll start with the FCC. Fair. So um, Jessica is great. If, if there is somebody who's got a big enough brain to handle the future of universal service, it is Chairwoman Rosen Warsaw. She mm-hmm. she knows the ins and outs and has been crunching this for a long time. So I, I think there's a couple of things. I think that, um, you know, one of the things that I think FCCs in the past have wanted to do with universal service is they want to... Um, make it easy. They want to put, make it a model. They want to put companies in and spit them out the other end. The one thing that we know better than probably anybody with 850 providers is there is nothing homogeneous about a, a rural provider. You know, whether it's your demographics, whether it's your density, whether you're serving in Alaska versus serving in South Carolina, what you are dealing with is so uniquely different that I think the SEC continuing to think about what that cost recovery mechanism is for these carriers is really important. And that's what universal service, again, really is. It's more of a cost recovery. It's not a capital upfront program, but that's why it's so important. So I I think really um, they're starting a proceeding. We are obviously going to file in that proceeding. And I think continuing to think about why that program is so important and not to be thinking about um, trying to put timelines on it because, again, we're going to have an infusion of so much money to build these rural networks. Do not waste your opportunity by not also thinking about sustaining those networks. And so so I, I remain very hopeful. I think you've got some some really good minds over there thinking through it. The other thing that I think is important with universal service is, you know, we focus a lot on the high cost portion of the program, but you've got schools and libraries, you've got the lifeline program, um, you've got the healthcare program, all of those programs really work very, very well together. And it's another reason why we'd love to see um, and think the FCC needs to move um, on universal service contribution reform. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one thing to say this program is important, what's the future of it? The other is to say, all right, how are we going to fund it? Because if we're funding it on the backs of long distance customers um, and not, you know, we're, we're funding broadband, but we have no way, we are not capturing broadband. So um, we've actually been working together with a bunch of um, terrific public interest groups, Schools and Libraries Coalition, um, folks at um, Public Knowledge and Free Press, really thinking about why this is so important for all of those programs under this umbrella. So really, it's going to take a little bit of nerves of steel, but I think the time is right. And if there's a um, chairperson who I think has the knowledge base to do it, it would be Chairwoman Rosen Warsel. Sounds good. And go ahead. Yes. And uh, then you said NTIA. So <laughs> so let me just say, Mr. Davidson has a really, really big job. He sure does. <laughs> he may have been watching that vote today thinking, hmm, blessing or a curse. But um, I am delighted. And I was worried that that was taking so long because he's got, you know, we've already got the proceedings out there. You know, NTIA is already asking for comments on, on where they go. Pretty tight time frame. But I will also say, you know, the interesting thing for me on this is people are all very excited and you have to kind of remind people that it's the government. This is how it works. <laughs> yeah. Money's not going out the door until probably 2023. Right. So let's be calm <laughs> and think about this with clear heads. So he's yeah. got a big job. 
Um, yeah, it, absolutely. Uh, it's definitely not going to be next week that all of the broadband funding gets distributed. Um, one of the ongoing debates in the industry, and by the way, good job keeping up with my multi-part questions. I'll keep this one simple, is around fiber versus tech neutral. As somebody who actually represents rural America, where do you fall down on this? We are so bullish on fiber technology. Okay. I feel passionately about the fact that um, I felt a passionately, even before we had $42 billion from the BEAD program and the Infrastructure Act, that do it right. You've got this opportunity. Let's build a future-proof network. At the end of the day, it's going to cost a little bit more upfront. In the long run, it will be cheaper mm -hmm. because while your CapEx feels a little bit higher, your OpEx will drop because the, the need to do truck rolls, the need for maintenance, and the ability to continually upgrade your networks. Um, so I, I really feel strongly, you know, there's some people who will say, oh, you know what, those poor rural Americans, they just, you know, we just need to get something up for them. Right. And I would say you are relegating them to second class service right out of the box. Don't do that. Let's mm -hmm. let's do it right. Now that we've got this infrastructure program, um, shame on us, because the other thing we've learned through the pandemic is how people use this technology. So when you think about the fact that, you know, you've got, you know, the kid at the counter doing their schoolworks, you know, a parent is, is on their VPN for work and somebody else is gaming in the basement. Um, you can't do that with um, some of the speeds that today have been kind of called, you know, table stakes in terms of what's been considered broadband. Mm -hmm. We've also learned that consumers download now um, or upload almost as fast as they download. So the need for synchronous speed is really important. So I, I would say we come down very, very heavily that fiber is the technology of choice. Um, and, and frankly, you know, when everybody gets excited about wireless, 5G is a fiber fed product. So, you know, you're going to do 5G in a rural community. It's going to be cheaper to do fiber the home than to put up a tower every 500 feet, feed it with fiber. Um, that's going to take you down a rural driveway. So you might as well just go ahead and put the fiber in and don't worry about the towers in some of these areas. All right. You heard it here. That's it. The, the Rural America uh, rep has said it. Uh, it's fiber only. Um, the, uh, the other one uh, that people can't seem to agree on is open access networks. W what role do you see those playing in you know, your communities? We, we don't have a lot of that in our communities. And again, thinking through the fact that, um, you know, I, I know people get very excited about competition and competition in this market. Honestly, if it weren't for universal service and support from things like USDA and the ReConnect program and the RUS program, these networks couldn't be built. They can't be sustained and built without support. So you want to interject competition into that model. You're already supporting one network to actually make it work and to make it affordable for people. Start to peel those off. Um just doesn't, first of all, it doesn't happen a ton in a rural area. And when it does, they go for the anchor institution, which all that does is increase the cost for everybody else on the network um, if they pull off the one school or the one library. Um, but, um, you know, I just, so I think the economies of rural networks are really different. So I don't think it makes it as attractive. I would just say the one thing we've got to be mindful of, particularly with federal funding, is to not overbuild. You know, when you, again, can't build a network without federal support, to put federal support, to compete against federal support mm -hmm. just becomes a losing proposition. And I'm just 
sure we've got better uses for that funding. There's deeper corners we can reach into the country. There's tribal areas we can make a more concerted effort um, to ensure that there's adoption and engagement there. So I, I um, you know, those are some of the things I kind of think about it. But on the flip side, I will say, you know, when I look at rural service areas, in some cases, it's going to take every tool in the toolbox. You're just Fair you're enough. just going to yeah. need a little bit of everything to make it work. All right. So last question for you um, is how are you all pivoting now that the infrastructure bill is law and um, all of this money is up for grabs? The NTIA has issued a call for uh, comment and there's all sorts of fun things, advocacy opportunities in the coming months. So how are you guys looking at all that? So I think the most interesting thing about what we're going to see next is that we've never seen this before. This is now going to be a program where the money is going to flow through the states. And that is very unique. Um, you know, you've seen dribs and drabs um, from states having little, you know, different grant programs and, and programs. But now the money will throw through from NTIA down to the states. So I, I think it's thinking about working with the states who are now like, here we are. What what just happened? Because, you know, per the law, every state will have a minimum of $100 million. You know, and you've got states that don't have a broadband office, haven't thought about a broadband office, and, and maybe they just assigned Joe in the Economic Development Office to take this over. Um, $100 million is no laughing matter. So, so it's working to help states um, in any way we can um, to get ready, to understand the issues, to get further schooled in um, what it it takes to build broadband networks. And then I think it's working, you know, hopefully nationally to make sure there's some sense of consistency between the states, um, in part because I, I think it's good public policy. If we start to say, for example, like one of the provisions in, in um, the law is some cybersecurity provisions. Well, if that gets punted to each state, suddenly you've got a carrier who might serve North and South Dakota on the border and it's like, well, I've got these South, you know, provisions for cybersecurity in South Dakota and, and these in North Dakota. How do I maintain some consistency so the states can streamline, so the states can actually focus more on getting the money out the door, working with communities, getting communities to work with providers, um, figuring out where they don't have broadband. You know, what is how is the mapping on the state driving with what is the mapping on the federal level? So there's a big task ahead. Um, but again, it's trying to think through this is just going to be really different and we're doing a paradigm shift. And I think it's all hands on decks to make sure that we can give states all the support they need as, as they embark on a really, really important next step for our country. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Shirley, for taking some time to talk about your work with me. I'm looking forward to keeping up with everything you guys do this year. And we're delighted to share as things happen. So thanks so much, Nicole. Absolutely. You're welcome back anytime. <laughs> <laughs> thank you again, Shirley, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Pierre Landrio, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.